All right, in a moment we're going to go to God's Word, but we are in the second week of a sermon series called The God Who Sees. And it's our premise, and as Rebecca uh, kicked us off last week, and if you missed that, please go online, uh, go to our podcast, you can watch or listen to that, search for Bel Air Church, and uh, she kicked us off on the sermon series, The God Who Sees, it reminds us that perspective changes everything. As long as there's been human history, there's been competing perspectives about all things, about who we are, about who God is, about what the purpose of life is, uh, the value of, of a human life, of, of one another, what defines beauty and love and, and grace and mercy and justice. And so, as we get to this moment, we acknowledge the fact that we live in a world where there's so many competing voices, so many competing perspectives. And if I just take one thing, for example, this novel coronavirus, COVID-19, as you know, there's a massive spectrum of perspectives that personally, as I've interacted with individuals in my uh, sphere of influence and in my relational network as part of this church, I've got people who are on one end of the spectrum who truly are filled with so much fear, who are terrified, who don't want to leave the house, who feel like this is the beginning of the end, all the way to the end of the, uh, end of the spectrum of people who are like, what's the big deal? Let me give you a hug and a kiss. <laughs> like truly, there's this massive spectrum of perspective. And what's interesting is that there's no moment within every day of our life that we need the right perspective on things. And without the right perspective, our lives begin to unravel. We can be filled with fear or worry or anxiety. Uh, we can just self-preserve. We can become the people that we um, don't like seeing in other people. We, we become those people. And it's a great reminder as we go through this sermon series that the more that we encounter the God who sees us, the God who sees one another, the God who sees all of God's creation, the more we understand God's perspective, the more we can have a right perspective on our own life, on who God is, on this life that God invites us into with one another, and actually, dare I say, that we actually have the right perspective on how to navigate all that's going on in the world, specifically as it relates to this novel coronavirus. And my prayer is that you would hear, that you would realize, that you would understand that God is calling you right here and right now to be His people, to be the church, to be ambassadors for Christ, to be witnesses for the truth, to walk out into this world with boldness and with love, not to have a spirit of fear, but of power and of, of love and a sound mind. The world is longing for us to be the people that God longs for us to be. And the world doesn't even know it. And so rather than say the world is coming crashing down or to blow it all off, there's this opportunity to take the middle way and to say, Jesus, what is your perspective on every moment of my life, every relationship, every decision, every circumstance, and how can I enter into it to glorify you? It's so fascinating. We, we prepare this sermon series months in advance and never in a million years did I think that we would get to this passage on this day, and I realized if I could have picked any passage on the planet in Scripture, I think I would have chosen this one. So if you would, would you open up your Bibles, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, in the second week of the sermon series on the God who sees. If you didn't bring a Bible, no problem. There's a red 
pew Bible in front of you. Maybe some of you have access to Scripture online. There's a great uh, free app. Some people refer to it as the Bible app. Some people refer to it by its uh, actual name, Version. You can download that, listen to not just read, but you can listen to many different translations of Scripture. There's Bible reading plans. It's, it's a phenomenal resource. So if you're accessing that online or in person, I'm going to read for us Genesis 3, 1 through 10. This is God's Word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat from any tree? In the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. This, my friends, is the reading of God's Word. This could be a 10-week sermon series, and I've got 30 minutes. And so, let me first say what I'm not going to do, what I'm not going to go down, that if you are interested in, there's so many resources. What I'm not going to do is I'm not going to talk about the origin of the serpent, and yet many scholars say that this is the epitome of God's enemy. We'll get to that in a moment. What I'm not going to do is go into all the details of how this begins to unravel the consequences of this choice. Uh, what I'm not going to go into is actually the first mention of Jesus in Scripture. In fact, Genesis 3.16 is this promise of one who would come to make all things right. I'm not going to go into the details of that. I'm not going to go into the details of how for the first time there is a sacrifice that is made. You see, they weren't able to cover themselves with fig leaves, and so the first death occurs in God's creation. For there to be uh, the skins of animals to then cover over the first humans meant that there needed to be a sacrifice. I'm not going to go into the details of how that foreshadows the ultimate sacrifice on the cross. I'm not going to go into all the details of how actually it's God's justice and mercy that come together when God sends them out of the garden and how loving that is that they wouldn't eat from the tree of life forever, eternally being distanced from God. There's so much in this passage, so much in Genesis chapter 3. So what I want to do is I want to focus in on just a little sliver. In this sermon series, The God Who Sees, in acknowledgement that perspective changes everything, 
I want to demonstrate to you that there's actually two different ways believers can view the world, their life and everything in it. And those two different perspectives that even believers can have are worlds apart. For example, in Genesis chapter 1, we are introduced to God. The Hebrew word is Elohim. Can I hear you say Elohim? And in Genesis chapter 1, it's one of many creation accounts in Scripture. We are introduced to this creator God who speaks all things into existence. And the Genesis 1 account of Scripture, of creation, really speaks to the broad strokes, the big picture creation. We talk and see about stars uh, and sky and water and plants and animals and humanity. And there's this this almost removed, zoomed-out, big-picture view of creation. However, once we get into Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, we get another perspective on the same creation account. And the, the author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that writes this, adds a word before Elohim in that Genesis 2 creation account. And our Jewish friends, as they would read through the Hebrew Scriptures, when they would get to that phrase, which we see here in our English text, which reads, the Lord God, and you'll notice that the Lord is all in capital letters. Our friends who are Jewish who would read through the Hebrew Scriptures, and even I was taught in my Hebrew class that when I was to read that name, that phrase, I was to say, La Adonai Elohim. Can I hear you say, La Adonai Elohim? the Lord God. Now, here's what's interesting. In the Hebrew language, it doesn't say, it doesn't read Adonai, even though you would speak La Adonai. Uh, if you were to go into the Hebrew, actually, there are four letters. It's Y-H-W-H. Now, this is the name that was revealed to Moses in the burning bush. Nobody knows exactly how to pronounce the name of God. There's Many people say, oh, it's Yahweh. Uh, some people say it's Jehovah. My friend who wrote a whole doctoral dissertation on this says that every human being on the planet, every time they breathe, speaks the name of their creator God when they go, Think about that doctoral dissertation. So what's fascinating is here you have this Elohim view of creation and this La Adonai Elohim, view of creation. One is this distant acknowledgement of a creator, and the other is an up-close and personal in relationship with that creator. And here's what's fascinating. As you go through Genesis chapter 2, that phrase, the Lord God, is used no less than 20 times, except for the conversation between the serpent and that woman and the language shifts. So let me say this. Both perspectives believe in God. But if you just have an Elohim view of God, a God who is distant, a God who is removed, a God who just creates, a God who is far off, and that's your entire view of who God is, you will miss out on a La Adonai Elohim relationship with God that knows God as redeemer and counselor and friend and sustainer and provider and Lord. 
And here's what's so fascinating. We see at the very beginning, as things begin to unravel, this perspective begins to shift for the first humans. They've always known God in a loving relationship. They've always known God as as a provider and redeemer and friend. Their identity and their perspective on life is accurate and true, and they're filled with joy and peace, and there's no more sorrow. There's no death. There's not no more. There never was sorrow. There's no death. There's no traffic. There's no gluten intolerances. There's no novel coronaviruses. There's no taxes. There's no DMV. There's nothing in God's original intended creation. But watch what happens. If you would open those Bibles back up and take a look in Genesis chapter 3, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty. Some translations say shrewd or cunning. And the intent here is that this, this serpent, this animal, was being deceitful for selfish gain. And it says clearly here, the narrator is saying that this wild animal was created by the Lord God, that Adonai Elohim. But look at this. He says to the woman, did God, that's the first lie right there. I got to tell you, I've been reading this passage for like 25 years. Not until this week did I realize that the serpent is not acknowledging la Adonai Elohim. For the first time this week, I realized that the beginning of the erosion of trust, the beginning of dismantling the perspective that the first humans had of their loving God, their creator God, their sustainer God, was to refer to that God simply as Elohim. And right there from the get-go, even in the question, even in the name of God, it begins to undermine her perspective of who God actually is. This distant, this creator, this perhaps unemotional, this removed God. Did God say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Question. He goes right after her memory. Uh, You've heard me say before that the word remember is found in Scripture five times more frequently than the word believe. The word remember is found in Scripture twice as much as the word trust. I did my whole doctoral dissertation on this one Hebrew word, zakar. It's, It's... it's so mind-blowing to realize that the root, it seems, of all temptation, the beginning of all brokenness, the, the catalyst for all sin is actually an inability to remember God's perspective. And when you forget God's perspective, you can begin to have the perspective of the dominant voice, whether that's a person uh, or a culture around you. And so the serpent goes right after her memory, reducing the name of God from a personal to a very much removed name, and asks a question. And specifically the question, I'm going to repeat that you shall not eat from any tree in the garden. Now let's go back to Genesis 2 to see exactly what God actually said. If you would go to Genesis chapter 2 and take a look at verse 16. This is the first command of Scripture. It's not a do not touch. It's not a do not eat. It's not a stay away. The first command of Scripture to humanity is this, verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the ha'adam, it's literally translated the earth creature, from the ground creature, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden. Let's pause right there. So right there you have this 
creator God in relationship with humanity that commands, you may eat freely from every tree of the garden, but then it goes on to say, but of this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, do not eat, because if you do, you will die. And so here you have the serpent who reduces the name to a very distant name, then subverts it, twists it. It's a little bit of a half-truth and says, did God really say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And here's what's fascinating. Her response is a response that I think is true of many of us as we have interactions with people in our daily lives that aren't followers of Christ, that don't have a relationship with the God of the cosmos. Take a look at what she says. The woman, verse 2, said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Let's pause right there. She's actually reduced, she's actually made smaller the actual command. So God says, you may eat freely from every tree of the garden except for that one. And then she responds and says, yeah, we may eat of the fruit of the trees. So even right there, she's remembering, she's actually reducing She's actually limiting, she's actually minimizing the fullness of all the blessings and the glorious abundant life that God has actually given her. She's downplaying it in the conversation with the serpent. And she goes on and she says this. Take a look. Verse 3, but God said, I never saw this until this week. In that moment, she doesn't refer to her Savior, her Redeemer, her friend, as any of the names of God? She says, but Elohim said. You know, throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, we see all these names of all these amazing, beautiful truths of who God is. And in fact, because we are the church, we study Scripture, I would love for you, would you just shout out some of the names of God that you are aware of? Some of you have like all of them memorized, so why don't you just shout them at some of you like, uh, God? Wonderful counselor, heard that? Prince of Peace? El Shaddai. What does El Shaddai mean? Do you know what El Shaddai means? Anybody? Almighty God, yes. Jehovah Rapha, do you know what Jehovah Rapha means? God who heals, healer God. What's Jehovah Jireh mean? The God who provides. It's also the God who sees. So you know that phrase, I will see to it? It's the same root word. Isn't that fascinating? Isn't that amazing? Yahweh, yeah. So all these names for God that we are aware of. I wonder, I wonder if there are not infinitely more names for God that reveal the true character, the true nature of who God actually is. And I wonder if those first humans actually knew all the names of God. They knew God in such an intimate, such a profound, such a exquisite way that her response of simply, but Elohim said, is such a reduction of the intimacy of which those first humans had with God that we can't even comprehend how much he compromised in that moment. And I think that many of us, we do the same thing. Maybe when we're not around believers, maybe when we're not here, uh, we're out in public, we're uh, maybe at work, and maybe somebody asks you what your belief system is, and maybe some of you, you're, you're, you're hesitant to say what you might say in a life group or here to me as a pastor or to somebody else, and maybe you won't say, you know, Jesus is my Lord, He's my Savior, He's my rock, the Spirit of God leads. Maybe you don't say that. Maybe you say, you know, 
yeah, I believe in intelligent design. And some of you laugh because you're like, oh, that was me yesterday. And some of you maybe are silent because you're like, what's wrong with that? The smallest things can begin to erode a right perspective on who God is and who we are and the life that God invites us into. And when we begin to compromise the fullness of God that God has revealed to us through Scripture, through the Holy Spirit, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, as we begin to compromise, even as believers, we can reduce the deep, vibrant, intimate relationship that we have with God in Christ. Jesus says, I have come to give you life and life to the full, and we can reduce it to simply a distant Elohim. Oh, yeah, I believe in a creator. You see, there's churches around the nation, around the globe, that are gathering today, and they're filled with people that believe in God. And yet even with people who believe in God, you can have two very different perspectives on life. And I'm going to sum it up and say it's either an Elohim perspective or it's an La'aronai Elohim perspective. One is distant, one is removed. One is a vibrant relationship where you are pursuing a growth in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And here... These first humans, all they've ever known is this profound, intimate relationship in her memory, which is attacked, which is questioned, causes her to reduce the blessings of God, reduce the, the true identity of God. She goes on and she says this, take a look. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Let's pause right there. Even that wasn't entirely accurate. She just says, oh, yeah, that tree in the middle of the garden. She doesn't say the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She even reduces it right there, and it says this. Listen to this. Nor shall you touch it. Let me hear you say touch it. Touch it. Or you will die. She has now made up a law. And humans have been making up laws ever since. Never does it say in God's command that if she touches that tree, she will die. Maybe you're like, yeah, yeah, he did. No, no, no. God said if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. When you reduce God out of a relationship to this distant creator, you can begin to make up rules that don't exist. And that's what human-made religion is. That's what this desire to live in a very black and white, removed from a vibrant relationship with God. When you remove the relationship, you need the black and white, and you can begin to make up rules and you can begin to make up laws. In fact, in the first century, the Pharisees actually made up so many laws in this black and white view of the world that they had a different law for every day of the year. You're either in or you're out. You're either clean or you're unclean. And so some of the questions that they asked Jesus, God in the flesh, were from that perspective of life of black and white. And so they asked Jesus all these questions, and he was unwilling to have that black and white view of the world, and he asked them questions in response because he acknowledged the fact that when you are in a relationship with God, there's this messy tension that God longs to invite you into. 
to see the world from God's eyes. This world is not black and white that God created. This world is meant to be lived in relationship with God through a loving relationship, a faith-filled relationship with Jesus Christ. And so as I meet people, as you've met people, if they live in a very black and white world, if you were a person that lives in a very black and white world, would you do the hard work of asking yourself, is your view of God just this distant, far-off judge and creator, or are you actually in a daily walk with Jesus Christ through prayer, through the reading of Scripture? And I would go so far to say that if you are just rigid and black and white and you see the world through black and white lenses, then likely you have settled for a distant, far-off view of God when today God is longing to have a vibrant relationship with you in Jesus Christ. So she makes up a law. She says, if you, yeah, yeah, God said, if, if we touch it, we will die. And the serpent then responds, verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. Kind of half true. You know, because they eat, and of course, Scripture says that Adam goes on to live like 900-something years old. We had a big debate on the patio of like, you know, was time different back then? Regardless, they don't physically die in that moment, but more significantly, their relationship with God dies. And it goes on to say, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And here's what's interesting. If you were to ask me over the course of my life, why did God tell them, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? For most of my life, you know what response I would give? I'd give this response. Well, because God knew that when they ate of it, their eyes would be opened and they would be like God, knowing good and evil. How many of you would say, well, that's, that's why God didn't have them eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Some of you feel like this is a setup. But put your hands up really high. Uh, yeah, just honest. Yeah. That was the serpent's answer. The serpent twisting the truth says, this is why God told them to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In fact, I read commentary after commentary after commentary, and I've said from the pulpit, this is why they weren't supposed to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And all I was doing was perpetuating the lie of the serpent. We don't know the real reason why God told them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All we have in Scripture is the serpent's perspective, and the serpent's perspective is wrong. So even we, if we believe that's the reason why God told them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we now have the serpent's perspective. We don't have God's perspective. And it's hard to live in the mystery to say, God, why would you not allow them to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And it's so tempting to have a quick, easy, nice answer. And the quick, easy, nice, and easy answer is the serpent's answer. The harder thing is to enter into a relationship with God and in prayer say, God, why would you do that? And to read the fullness of Scripture and try to understand God's heart and to also have faith and for me to say that the real answer is we don't know. 
It's like question number 752 of 17,000 that I want to ask of God when I'm in God's presence. Why did you not want them to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It goes on. Take a look at this. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of it and ate its fruit. For the first time, that food looked good. For the first time, it became a delight to the eyes. For the first time, she felt like it was to be desired to make one wise. Never before in her entire life had she even been drawn to that tree, we believe. The Hebrew language here gives the impression that this is a first-time thing, that all of a sudden she became aware of the thing that she wasn't aware of before. And some of you know exactly what this is like. All of a sudden there's something that presents itself to you, and all of a sudden you're like, I want that. And yesterday you didn't even know existed, and you were like, I need that. You know, and there's people around the world who never in a million years, a year ago did they think, I need a mask. I'm willing to pay, you know. <laughs> For some people, never in a million years do they think, I need that drug. I need that affirmation from that person. And we see right here what all of humanity faces every single day, every single second of our lives, that there is this temptation to settle for the thing that is around us to provide that which only God can provide. And that's true in our work. That's true with what we eat, with what we drink, with the things that we buy, with what people say about us. There are temptations everywhere that all of a sudden become a delight to our eyes that we now define as good that we now say, this is the path to wisdom, this is the path to power, this is the path to security, this is the path to peace. And it all began with a compromise of perspective. And so all of a sudden she eats. She gives it to her husband, he eats. And the immediate response, the immediate consequence, the immediate reality is this. Take a look in verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. They hide from one another. That the first response, the first reality is a distancing from each other, a distancing from God. They've just gone from a La Adonai Elohim relationship to an Elohim relationship because now they hide from God in the trees and God walks in the garden at the part of the day where the evening breeze comes. It's the best part of the day, the golden hour of the day. And in this part of the world, you're, you're waiting for that breeze to come in the hotness of the heat of the day. And God calls out and says, where are you? And I believe that's not a question that God asks because God doesn't know. I believe that's a question that God asks because God genuinely cares for them and for you and for me on how we will answer that question. 
You see in Genesis chapter 4, after Cain kills Abel, uh, God goes to the Lord God, goes to Cain and says, where is your brother? And uh, Cain responds and says, am, am, I, am I supposed to be my brother's keeper? And the Lord God responds and says, the, the blood of your brother cries out to me from the ground. God knows exactly what has gone on. God knows exactly where they are. God knows exactly where you are. And he asks you and he asks me and he asks them the question, where are you? Longing to be in a relationship with you and with them. He says, where are you? And here's how they respond. Verse 9, verse 10 actually. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. There's a question that I believe God is asking all of us today. Where are you? The way that they hid themselves was with fig leaves and behind trees. The way some of us can hide ourselves is behind church attendance, behind good deeds. We can hide ourselves behind, oh yeah, I'm, I'm great, I'm fine. And I believe that God is constantly asking you, constantly asking me the question, where are you? And the reason why we hide from God, from each other, from ourselves, I believe, comes all the way back to we have a wrong perspective on who God is. And if we have a perspective of God that is removed, that is distant, that is judgmental, that is far off, that is demanding us to do better, we live at arm's length from who we actually are. And there's this invitation that God gives us through Jesus to move into this relationship today. In Romans 10, 9 and 10 says this, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And the irony is, is that they move from life to spiritual death, that when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you move from spiritual death to life. Jesus says the thief, that's the enemy, the serpent, has come to, to kill and destroy, to steal, kill, and destroy. You can do a three-week sermon just on that. Jesus, I've come to give you life and life to the full right here, right now. You can have a perspective on who you actually really are. You are a beloved child of God, beloved because you've put your faith and trust in Jesus. And the, the perfect life that Jesus lived, the death that he died, risen from the grave, God looks at you in that relationship and he looks at you and says, you, you are my beloved child. You don't have to earn your way into my love. You don't have to earn your way into my graces. You don't have to hide, but in humility, receive the gift that I'm giving you. You can know that Ephesians 2.10, that you are God's poema, you are God's masterpiece, but you've been created for good works in Jesus Christ. You can know that you've been called to be an ambassador for Christ. And right here, right now, as you are sent out into this world, the question again is, where are you? Perspective changes everything. The world needs, and they don't know it, and you need, and maybe you don't know it, you need God's perspective on everything in your life. And that takes a relationship, a relationship that God wants a relationship that God knows that God has to purchase. 
a relationship that God says, I have paid for it with my life. And yet you have a choice. You're not forced. So Scripture says, choose for yourself whom you will serve this day. You know, it's so comforting knowing that God's perspective guides us. If you would, just for a moment, put yourself in my shoes. Senior pastor, we've got to make some decisions. CDC says this. Emails say this. The news says this. People saying, uh, you are irresponsible for doing this today. I mean, you would have no idea the type of phone calls and emails and conversations I've had this week. And so what do we do? Because we're not an hour on Sunday, because we're not a building, because we, the people, are the church, we have to prepare for every scenario, and we have to pray that God would do a miraculous work in our midst. And so I want you to know that we as a team, as a staff, are preparing for uh, what might be considered worst-case scenario. We are prepared, even if we have to close our doors, not by choice, but by decree. On Easter Sunday, we are prepared to equip you to be the church on Easter Sunday. We're talking about recording our entire Easter service and not just having four services, but like 10 on that day. What does Monday Thursday look like if our city says you have to stay at home? We're still going to have a Monday Thursday meal. Uh, what does it look like to pray together as a church when the, the city says uh, don't get near one another? Oh, we're still going to pray, and we're going to press in, and we're going to be the church because the church is what God longs to be the hope for humanity. And there's different ways in which we can be the church. So let's break out of our routine. Let's break out of thinking this is the only way in which we can do things, but we can be a hope to a hurting world. We can be witnesses to Christ, and we can do what God has called us to do only if we have a La Aronai Elohim perspective that says, God, what do we do? Guide us, lead us, Spirit of God, give us wisdom. So would you join us in praying for that? Would you lean in in this moment? Would you not have a spirit of fear, but would the power come from Christ in that relationship? Would you have a love that comes from a God who first loves you? And would you have a sound mind because it is the spirit of God that gives you wisdom and perspective? It's a good time to be a follower of Christ right now. There's such amazing opportunity for us to be the people that God longs for us to be. I get excited in these moments. I know you do too. Let's pray. Jesus, you have come. You have poured out your spirit upon us. And so we, with boldness, with wisdom, with respect for others, with self-restraint, while looking out to others and their interests and not just our own, we want to be the people that you have lived and died and rose again for us to be. So Jesus, would you break our routines? Would you break uh, our perspective of the way that we follow you is the only way to follow you? But would you grow us now and give us new eyes to see how we can follow you 
every moment of every day, wherever we are with everyone. Jesus, we thank you for your love, a tangible love, a transforming love. It's in your name we pray and we say together, amen.